What's good? Welcome back to Black and Published, a podcast for writers, poets, playwrights, and storytellers of all kinds. I'm your host, Nikisha Elise Williams, an award-winning author, two-time Emmy Award-winning producer, publisher, all that good stuff. Today, we're talking with Rosamund S. King, author of All the Rage, a new poetry collection out now from Night Boat Books. So, Rosamund S. King is a creative and critical writer and performer. Her poetry publications include All the Rage, which was released April 6th of this year. It's out right now. As well as the Lambda award-winning Rock Salt Stone and poems in more than three dozen journals, blogs, and anthologies that include The Feminist Wire, Hyperallergic, Harriet, and The Caribbean Writer. King has performed at biennials, festivals, bookstores, and other venues around the world. Her scholarly book, Island Bodies, Transgressive Sexualities in the Caribbean Imagination, was named Best Book by the Caribbean Studies Association. King is creative editor of SX Salon and an associate professor at Brooklyn College, part of the City University of New York. In this conversation, we discuss why trauma-induced rage and joy should coexist. When Rosamond realized self-publishing was not for her, child, it ain't for everybody. How she identified she was a writer with a capital W and why she says it's her goal to never repeat herself. Black and published family, welcome Rosamond to the show. Rosamond, thank you for joining me on Black and Published today. Um, I'm excited. Your book is out all the rage, uh, or will be when this interview comes out. So my first question, every every time on Black and Published, when did you know that you were a writer? It's a really interesting question for me because I think as soon as I was able to write, I'm really blessed that in my family, writing and art were treated as everyday activities and not as something special. So my granny wrote poetry and she would read her poetry and she, I didn't, I didn't know what self-publishing was at the time, but she had self-published a book. So granny had a book. And um, the two words that we were not allowed to say growing up were bored and hate. And I remember one day I said I was bored and my father said, oh really? (laughs) And so he went and got me and lifted me up and put me in a chair um, facing a window and put a piece of paper and a pencil in front of me. And he said, do you see that tree? I said, yes. He said, I want you to write a story about that tree. I'm going to come back in a half an hour and you'll read me your story, okay? I said, okay. (laughs) So it was just a real everyday thing. I mean, it wasn't until I was in my 20s and I moved to New York City that I learned what a capital W writer was. And I met a very good friend, um, Gabrielle Seville, who's a performance artist and a writer, and I showed her this binder that had like 300 poems in it. Because she said, oh, you really, you're a poet? I said, yeah, I'm a poet. I write all the time. And she said, well, where's your manuscript? And I said, what's a manuscript? <laughs> so that began my education of kind of, you know, what, what most people think a writer was. But being a writer to me was always just something that I did, something that fed me, something that I enjoyed and I would share with other people. And I really feel good that I had that foundation 
so that that's where I'm grounded in, as opposed to kind of being grounded in thinking about other people's perception of what a writer is and what it means for me to be a writer. Wow. Um, so you got to New York and had all of this writing and did not even <laughs> connect it to the fact that this is what you do. This is what you love. So this is what I am. Right. I mean, it was it was part of who I was, but I didn't know that I could do. I didn't know all the other things I could do with it. Yeah. So so the, the moment where I felt what, when I, I the moment that I felt that I was a real writer was when I was on campus and I had I was part of a spoken word group and another student bumped into me and said, hey, are you that girl who read that poem? And I said, yeah. And she said, can you print out a copy for me so that I can tape it to my mirror and read it every day? And I thought, wow, I wrote something that moved somebody so much that it's going to inspire her. She wants it to inspire her every single day. And that was enough for me. Um, so it wasn't that I felt like I was diminished and I wasn't good enough to publish a book. I just thought that's what's, you know, there's some kind of other type of person who does those things. So then what were you doing for like life and living and work? I was, I was being a student. I came to New York to go to grad school to get a PhD in comparative literature. And I felt like I was going to do that. I, when I found out they were going to pay me to read, write, and think, I was very excited. I had no interest in becoming a professor. I thought I'm going to go get a real job after that. And um, I had a ball in New York um, and I had a very good experience as a graduate student. I met wonderful people. I, I started a nonprofit. I started doing performance art. It was just a super creative and generative moment um, in my life. Yeah. So again, I didn't feel like I was missing anything. But then when I found out about what I call the capital W writing life and what I call the povers, um, I just felt like, okay, that's more. Let's add on, let's add on more and have more fun and have more experiences and try more things. So did you ever have a specific point where you shifted from, I'm going to get a real job with this PhD, or um, I'm going to follow this writing thing and make that my real job? Um, I still feel like I haven't made writing my real job. <laughs> it does. And, and that's not a bad thing to me because poetry doesn't pay enough. You know, I pick everything that pays the least amount of money dance, performance art, poetry. Like if you're going to be a writer, you know, don't pick poetry. If you're going to be a performer, at least pick theater. You know, they never pay the dancers, but they'll, they might pay the actors. <laughs> so I, so I, you know, I, I, start, I ran my own company where I did business consulting for artists. Um, and I was very happy doing that. And I did, you know, I worked in corporate America. I did a lot of different things. And during the last recession, I thought, well, I have this PhD. Technically, I'm trained to be a professor. And that's when I went into teaching as a field. But I, you know, I, I believe that everybody should really pursue the path that is best for them. And in this, in the 21st century, especially as Black people, as people of color, there are so many more options that are available to us that I think, you know, choose what works for you. But part of the reason that I have continued, at least thus far, to have a full-time regular gig is that if I want to do something, I don't have to write a grant for it. You know, I can, I can say, well, I have, a, I have a paycheck coming every two weeks. 
So if I want to take $1,000 and just do a project, I can do that. And I don't have to ask anybody's permission. If it's a little weird or it's experimental, I don't have to worry that the powers that be won't like it. And then I won't be able to actually do the project. And that for me has been very freeing, even though obviously I have to devote a large amount of time to my job. A woman after my own heart, dancing, (laughs) writing, (laughs) picking the job that doesn't pay any money (laughs) because you love it. Oh my gosh. So like where in that journey of like the first recession and and running your own business and and going back, I guess, into the university setting, did you come Mm -hmm. up with your full manuscript for, uh, was it Rock Salt Stone? Did I say that right? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Well, when, you know, Gabrielle saw my 300 pages of poetry and said, you should get together a manuscript. And I started to talk to her and other people about what that meant. I came up with multiple manuscripts because I had so many poems and started submitting poems to journals and eventually started submitting my manuscript to presses. And I had a lot of success with placing poems in anthologies in journals, you know, best African-American poetry, like really wonderful places that I was super excited about. Um, And in terms of the manuscript, I got rejected from some of the best presses in the whole United States of America. (laughs) And, you know, name names. (laughs) Um, Gosh, can I even remember at this point? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, for poetry, these are small, smaller presses. Um, And yeah, maybe I shouldn't name names because it's no shade against them. Um, you know, the, the manuscript that became Rock Salt Stone is very different than the initial manuscripts that I sent out. And I think it was a combination of things. I think the very first manuscript that I sent out maybe wasn't actually, you know, 100% strong. Um, I also think that in the moments when I was initially submitting, Black experimental poetry was not the thing that it is today post Claudia Rankin's Citizen. Right. And so I had experiences where I would send my workplaces and they would say, oh, this is really wonderful. We really want to publish it. Could you resubmit for our Black History Month issue? Or I'd submit to, you know, to uh, journals that were predominantly Black and they'd say, oh, this is really interesting. We like it. But could you resubmit for our experimental issue? Or this is a little bit too edgy for us. You know, we like it, but it's not it's not right for our publication. And that started to change in the 2000s. Um, And again, you know, Claudia Rankin had such huge mainstream success that people started to realize, oh, it can be a little funky. (laughs) It can be, you know, not mainstream, not quote unquote traditional and still be readable and, and people can still want to read it. So it was a very long process to get the book published. And, you know, I tell people if you're a writer and you're not getting rejected, you're not sending enough stuff out. It's just part of the process and you have to get comfortable with that. And if you can't handle rejection, then maybe you need to think about self-publishing. Maybe you need to think about other ways of serving yourself Um, because asking other people for things, they will not always say yes. (laughs) Um, But what happened in the end is that I had submitted my, my manuscripts to multiple places and, you know, was getting frustrated, but kept sending it out because that's what you do. And in the end, it was someone who had seen me read. I perform a lot. I read a lot. And um, that's part of my practice. Um, And who had seen me read multiple times. And after one of the readings came up to me and said, you know, do you have a manuscript? Because I run a press. And I said, oh, do I have a manuscript? (laughs) And I sent him two. It was Stephen Motika, who runs Nightbook Books. 
And he came back with something I was not expecting, which was, he said, could you combine these and make them one? And that was a lot of work. And what I tell people, because people don't always think about this is I, at that point, I felt really confident in the individual poems, but I wasn't sure how to make them a manuscript. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, let me get some help. And I asked Duriel Harris, who is someone who, uh, another Black woman poet, who um, I'm, who I like a lot, um, but who is not kind of my best friend, <laughs> so that, you know, she could be comfortable saying stuff to me and being real, um, but who I really admire as a poet. And I asked her to go through the manuscripts and help me think about combining them into one. And so I like to tell people that because there's no shade, there's no shame in asking for help to learn something that you don't know how to do. And now I feel better, you know, with all the rage, I felt a lot better and a lot stronger and I figured out my own way of putting the manuscript together. How many years from the time that you realized that you could do something with these poems Till until you were that guy saw you at the night boat guy saw you read and asked you for a manuscript that you like how many years was that? I want people to, to like know like this isn't not an overnight thing. Mm-hmm. That was about 16 years. On one book. Well, remember, I had written, I I had I had probably six manuscripts. You know, I had I had many, many manuscripts that never saw that have not seen the light of day, although I've kind of pulled individual poems from them. So the the book that got Rock Salt Stone is not, you know, the the very first manuscript was called Vernacular's Laughing. And there are are there any poems from, there might not be any poems from Vernacular's Laughing in Rock Salt Stone. So part of the process was writing new poems, revising old poems. You know, I was fortunate enough to be a Poets House Fellow and I I got to meet with Cornelius Edie, who went through my manuscript, and he said to me, he asked me, he said, how old are these poems? And I was like, well, some of them are some of them are maybe 10 years. I mean, I was embarrassed to tell him, I said, some of them are maybe 10 years old. And he said, mm-hmm. He said, you needed to write those poems to write the other poems, but they don't need to be in the book. And that was incredibly helpful because they were poems that were close to me. They were important to me. I felt like I had done something with them or they were breakthrough poems. But when he said that to me, it made crystal clear sense that they don't actually serve the manuscript at, by being in the manuscript. They serve the manuscript by existing. Mm. So that was one lesson that you learned along the way. What are some of the other lessons that you learned in this 16-year journey of identifying, oh, I'm a writer and rock salt stone? Well, maybe I'll show, you, I'll show two, two lessons. One is I'm a writer because I write. I'm not, a, again, I'm not a writer because people decide to publish me, <laughs> you know, because, you know, and, and then the fact that people don't want to publish me doesn't mean I'm not a writer. I'm a writer because I write. And that belongs to me. That is part of who I am. So that's one thing. Um, And then another thing is don't give up. You know, Um, I thought about, I I self-published a chapbook during that time, which is still available. Um, And I thought about self-publishing the entire collection, but I looked at my friends who had done that and I decided it wasn't right for me because I didn't want to have to do everything. I didn't want to have to pick the font 
I didn't want to have to design the cover. <laughs> you know, I will hustle for my work. I hustle for my work all the time. I'll do the readings. I'll, um, you know, I'll, I'll, whatever, whatever I can do to support the book, I will do it. But I didn't want to have to do the logistics of the book. And I have deep respect for the people who are able to do both of those things. <laughs> but I think partly the reason, you know, the fact that I have a day job means I don't have the, the headspace to do that and do the creative work. And so for me, then, once I made that decision that I wasn't going to self-publish, it meant I had to not give up on seeking publication in other places. Um, so, yeah, I think just, you know, keep going with whatever you decide your dream is. Keep writing towards that. I like that you recognize that self-publishing wasn't for you because as I do the work that I do, like this morning, I was typesetting a book and doing the layout for a new manuscript for one of the authors under my company. And it's tedious. I think I'm only on like page 12. Mm -hmm. <laughs> for just yeah. setting, setting the font and putting in the publication information and the ISBNs and all of those things. Um, mm -hmm. so I, I like that you recognize that that wasn't for you and you found your own lane, even though you self-publish your chat book. So I know poetry, but I don't really know poetry. So can you distinguish what, for me in the audience, you know, what's the difference between a chat book and a full collection? Sure. Well, the, the easiest way to say it is that a chat book is shorter. So a chat book is typically, it can be as short as, it can be as short as anything. It can be as short as maybe, you know, three pages or 10 pages, but usually a chat book is anywhere from 15 pages to maybe 30 pages. And then a full length book would be anywhere from 40 pages to, you know, 100, 150 pages. You usually don't see poetry books much longer than that unless they're collected or selected. Um, but most of it is that a chapbook is short and often it's focused on a particular theme or a particular concept or a particular structure of poem. So in doing your chat book, what kind of outlet did that give you by self-publishing it? It was nice to hold a book in my hands, I have to say. That was a lovely, lovely, lovely thing. Um, and I will say that the impetus for creating the chat book is that I was having a lot of success, as I said, publishing poems in individual journals. And I had a lot of people coming up to me after I did performances and readings and saying, I really enjoyed that. That was really wonderful. And it was, it was about letting people have something to take home. So I used CreateSpace and I think the book is still maybe $7 on Amazon or something because the point wasn't to make money. The point was to have, have my poems out in the world. And it's really served that purpose. And one of the reasons that I haven't taken a lot of print is that if somebody, you know, when I, when I do in-person readings, I sell it for five bucks. If somebody only has five bucks, but they want to honor me by taking my work home, I want to have an option that's available to them. So I've really, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a great process. And again, it was a great process for me understanding what the things that I didn't want to do. Um, and I would, you know, remind people, thank your publishers, thank other people's publishers. It is, it is really hard work and it's real, it's a real gift for someone to do that work on behalf of another person's writing. I like that you said that, you know, you aren't in it for the money. And because I feel like today, because self-publishing or independent publishing is so easy, a lot of people mm -hmm. get in and are in it for the money. 
and to find out that <laughs> there's still no money. <laughs> so, and and you said that you have your you still have your main gig. So you do you consider yourself more now? Um, is like your creative passion of writing and poetry like a side hustle, or is it fully who you are? But you're not, as Elizabeth Gilbert said, you're not trying to force it to feed you. Yes, I would say I'm not trying to force it to feed me, but it's absolutely wholly who I am. And, you know, the the people at my job are getting to know me more as a poet, but of course they know me mostly as a scholar. And in certain circles, I'm known almost exclusively as a scholar. What people don't realize is that to me, it's all the same project. Right. So when I write Island Bodies, Transgressor Sexualities in the Caribbean Imagination, and when I write Rock Salt Stone, when I write All the Rage, all of those projects are about voicing voices that are typically not heard. All of those projects are about investigating the intersections of sexuality, gender, race, and ethnicity. They sound quite different. They look quite different. But to me, it's all the same project. Oh, I love it. I feel like I'm looking at my reflection in the future. That's <laughs> <laughs> a reflection right now. <laughs> well, and no, just because I, I, I think some people don't understand when, as writers, you can just about write anything. Like I have a journalism background, but so whether mm-hmm. that's translated into like a hard-hitting investigative piece or an essay or a poetry collection or a novel or... um. I guess a scholarly book for the latest project I just turned in, it's it's all coming from the same creative vein. And so to hear you say that as an actual scholar, Dr. King, <laughs> with a big PhD, it it is it, just affirming. So from going from rock salt stone, what has the trajectory been to get you to all the rage because this is now your second collection and you've got anthologies and poetries and journals and then you've got mm-hmm. the scholarly work. So you've got some of everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the, I obviously I kept writing. I still had all of these poems, but it wasn't, the poems were not coalescing into a project, right? The way that I was like, okay, I have rock salt stone. That's the first book. It's got all these things in it. And then I wrote a poem, not on the day that Eric Garner was killed, Mm. but on the day that the grand jury refused to indict the policeman who had murdered him. Okay. And that poem, which has the words in it, I can't breathe. um, You know, I, I think I posted some of it on Facebook or something like that. And Someone who's actually not a poet, somebody who, who, makes, who makes books said, you know, this would be an interesting series. And I thought, huh. And unfortunately, as has been happening for the last several hundred years, the police have kept killing Black people. And I kept writing poems. Hmm. And I started to see that there's something here. Um, but I made a very conscious decision that Number one, I wanted to have the poems be speculative in the sense that they're very clearly about this moment, this time, and and largely the United States, um, but that I wanted them to be a little bit slant. You know, we, you know, Emily Dickinson said, "Tell the truth, but tell it slant." And so I created this space um, that I call the abattoir, and so many of the poems are set 
in the abattoir. And that really helped me think about, um, you know, writing a lot of these poems with what does that landscape look like? What are people doing in the abattoir? And the second super conscious decision that I made was that the abattoir was not going to be a place of complete abjection and trauma. That even when people are stuck in the abattoir, they fall in love, we dance, we laugh, even while there's blood dripping down the walls, we find ways to live our full humanity and be our full selves. And that's how All the Rage came together. And one of the, one of the other interesting background pieces is that I wanted the book to be published in 2020. And I stayed with Nightboat. Nightboat has done really well by me. I really appreciate the whole staff there. And Stephen said, Mm-mm, we can't do it until 2021. We've got too many books coming out in 2020 and we can't do them justice if we have too many of them. So we're slowing down, we're spacing out and it will come out in 2021. I was like, oh, well, you know, I was not happy. But what that space did is that I, there's actually, I added a section to the book that has poems about the pandemic. You know, there's a poem for Brianna Taylor in there. Um, and so sometimes the things that you see as stumbling blocks are, are actually opportunities or you can make them into opportunities. So that's kind of how all the rage came about. I like that you said that in the abattoir, it's not just, you know, abject desperation, but there's still laughter and there's still joy. Because even though you've created this kind of fictionalized landscape for, for these things to exist, it still representative of existence of Black people in America, where we still have laughter and joy and fun and dance and love in the middle of the desperation. I, I think of the summer of the protests, but then mm-hmm. once Black Lives Matter was painted on the ground in Black Lives Matter Plaza in DC and different places, it was full on Black parties out there in the midst mm-hmm. of the protests. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I like that you incorporate that into the into the book. Was it a was it a way for you to, I guess, release some of the anger of what you were seeing? Because if it started with Eric Garner in 2014, and I don't, he was killed in 2014. I forgot when forget when the indictments uh, were not handed down. It might have been a year later, but it's I think been, it was a year later. Yeah, yeah it's it, it's been six years now since that <laughs> first piece kind of lit something in you and it hasn't lessened. So uh-huh. has, has has all the rage become the outlet for you to just kind of release some of the trauma of seeing so many of these cases happen over and over and over again? Yes, you chose an interesting word, release. And I don't think for me, it's about releasing, it's about simultaneity. So it's about being mm-hmm. able to have the rage and acknowledge the trauma because, you know, sometimes, especially black women, we just keep going because we, there are things that have to happen for our families and for ourselves and so on. And we don't always stop to acknowledge the trauma. So I want to acknowledge the rage, acknowledge the trauma, express that, and also have the joy and Mm -hmm. the laughter and the erotic desire. Um, Yeah. So I don't, I don't, I don't want it to I, I, I take your using the word release um, in the sense of kind of not having it stay inside and corrupt you. And so I acknowledge that I don't want to do that. But I also want, I want it to stay there because if we don't stay angry, then Breonna Taylor's killers will not be held accountable, right? If we don't stay angry on some level, then we can't make change. 
And also we need to have joy. We need to have the block party. We need to have the, 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 the family zoom with friends where we're just hanging out um, and catching up and all of that. So it's more of a coexistence. Yes. Mm. Is that healthy? I think it is. I mean, I think that, I think there's a, as I said, I think that there's a danger in completely releasing anger and trauma. I think we need to acknowledge it. I think we need to deal with it. So it's not just that there's this ball of fire sitting inside of you, but you figure out, well, how is it that you can function and work around this? Um, But I don't want to completely let it go. Well, the title, like all the rage, it's it's evident that the ball of fire <laughs> is still there. <laughs> yes. Yes. But of course, all the rage is also, you know, it's what's trending. It's what's hot. It's what's lively. What are people doing right now? Right. Yeah. And you have a line like that in the book about things trending and and all of that. So since I can't put it off any longer, I'm going to read the description (laughs) and allow you time to find the pieces that you want to read for us today. And then we're going to get into these poems from All the Rage. So All the Rage addresses everyday pleasure as well as the present condition of racism in the United States, a time marked both by recurring police violence and intense artistic creativity from a variety of perspectives, being Black, an immigrant, a woman, and queer. At its core dwells Living in the Abattoir, a series in which people of color live out their days as both workers and meat. All the rage simultaneously invokes both anger at ongoing systemic violence and the frivolity of something that is perhaps temporarily trending. Rosamond, take it away. Thank you. I am gonna start with a poem that kind of introduces the avatar. It's called the avatar because we live under the blade. It's called the avatar because there is a larger economy based on our systematic, continuous, and premature death. It is the outside inside a part of and separate. Yonder, they do love our flesh. They love it jiggling. They love it naked. They love it sweating. They love it kneeling or prone, grinning or weeping, preferably all at the same time and with feeling. Added another poem. Onto that, that line, yonder they do not love our flesh, many people will know is from um, Toni Morrison's Beloved. This poem is called Blood is the New Hot Sauce. Blood is the new hot sauce, bottled condiment, sold behind glass at whole paycheck, served with tiny spoons by request at exclusive tasting menu joints named after tools or the least known cuts of meat. Knew it was coming. After fish head and oxtail, once thought trash for immigrants, now served poached 
cuisine knew it was coming after bone marrow and brains. I'll pause there. I'm struck by this concept that is in the in the description and that you weave throughout the pieces in the in the collection of this concept of people of color as both worker and meat. And both of those, I guess, titles, for lack of a better word, are in service of another. Why did mm-hmm. you decide to create that in this avatar that you have? That's a great question. I was interested in creating the landscape, the setting that in some ways people might expect, right? This this place that looks from the outside like a horrible place to be because there's blood everywhere and and you're surrounded by death. And you look in and you see people who are workers and they're making the meat and they are the meat. But the perspective is from the inside, right? And people who see each other as people and you like some of them, you don't like some of them, it's someone you're related to. And I thought a lot about the pronouns in these poems, right? So these are poems that anyone is welcome to read and anyone is invited into, but the we of the poems is Black people talking to each other, talking to ourselves. Um, And that to me was really important because that's what shifts the abattoir from this place of of abjectness to a place that is rich and has many layers and textures happening again, all at the same time. Mm. And watching you read, and I know my audience can't see this, but I can see the performer in you. So what, which do you, do you prefer the writing of the poem or the performing of the poem? Or like, do do they go hand in hand? Like when you, when you're writing it, you kind of are performing it for yourself as you're getting the words down on paper. That's interesting. Um, I love both of them. And to me, they're obviously deeply connected, but they're separate. Um, The, the, you know, sometimes the way that there's some poems that I, don't read because they work better on the page um, or I'll shift the words a little bit because they're because it'll be easier to understand hearing um, in, in a slightly different order or if there's a line that's repeated. I sometimes I think about the performance when I'm writing, but because the act of writing is so much about the words, Um, a lot of times I'm seeing it, I'm seeing the words, I'm reading it as I'm writing it and not necessarily thinking about the performance at that time. That being said, one of the, one of the lessons that I learned that was very particular to me, although it might be interesting and helpful to other people, is that I found that when I was reading Rock, Salt, Stone, I had to have this system of post-its because I almost never read the poems in which they, in the order in which they were put in the book. And when I was working on All the Rage, the manuscript, the book, it hit me that I needed to put it in the order in which I would perform it. Hmm. And so to me, the book can be an evening length performance that I, I could perform it in the entire thing in that order from start to finish. And so that was really useful in terms of the relationship between 
the manuscript and performing. I, I, I totally get that. Um, I'd released the poetry collection last year. It's mm-hmm. been a while. It's been a year. And <laughs> I did it as a one woman show. Now the collection mm-hmm. was like 20 pieces, but the show was only six. Because mm-hmm. coming from like a novelist background, my poems tend to be just like ridiculously long. <laughs> <laughs> but I made sure that the sequencing of the, the book would match the sequencing of the show. And even though I would only did six selected pieces, it was still in a, a similar order of sequencing for the show. That, so that makes perfect sense. Um, in what shape do your performances take place? Uh, so I, d- I distinguish between a performance and a reading. And so a reading is usually 10, 15 minutes. You know, someone has asked me to read and I'm always very appreciative anytime anyone wants to have me in their space and anytime anybody gives up some of their time to hear me, including thank you listeners of Black and Publishing Podcast. Um, But a performance to me is longer than 15 minutes. And I treated, one of my mentors was Jane Cortez, who performed with her band, The Fire Spitters. And she functioned in a lot of ways as a jazz musician. She had a writer the way the musicians had a writer. She always did sound check. She, um, you know, she had, her instrument was her voice and the other people in the band had their instruments as well. And so I think about it in terms of having a set or a playlist. And I go through, I rehearse. Um, You know, if people have told me you have 18 minutes, then I will be 17 minutes and 30 seconds. (laughs) Uh, I take, you know, I take that very seriously in terms of attention span um, and the time that's allotted to me because performance time is different than regular time. And the sustained attention of a performance can be more intense than regular time. So I think, you know, like a, an hour is a lot, um, you know, I think to, to watch a, a, a one person intense piece, as you know, doing a one woman show, that's why you cut yours, yours down as well. Um, so yeah, so for me, it's a, it's a very intense process that I go through. And I think even if it, even if people think they're coming to a reading, I think they'll notice stylized elements that are in the performative. So I did one performance where, you know, every time I read a poem, I kind of let it float to the ground page, right? Instead of reading from the book. Um, You know, even if I'm standing in one place, my arms are moving, my body is moving. Um, And I also think of the voice itself as performative, which is very easy because, you know, I I have poems that are using different forms of English as well. So, yeah, I think of it as kind of a whole experience um, that I try to have in, in my performances. So what are your plans for um, All the Rage? The book out April 6th, so it's new in the world. What's next for it? I'm so excited because, you know, in pandemic times, we didn't know what was going to happen. I thought, I don't know if there's going to be any events. But I'm partnering with Give Me Dance to do uh, a book launch. And I'm super excited because my dance community has been incredibly supportive of my writing. And so it's partly a party that everybody is welcome to attend. There's going to be other poets and and dancers who are going to join me that night to celebrate. Um, That's going to be April 9th. And you can go to Google Give Me Dance to find out about that. Um, And then there's also going to be a wonderful event on 
Black Queer Creativity in the Pandemic Times, and Robert Jones, author of The Prophets, and John Keane, author of many books, including um, annotations, uh, are going to join me for that event, uh, where we'll all read from our work, and then we'll have a more informal conversation. So those are the two big things that are happening the month that the book is released, National Poetry Month. Uh, the, the second event is at Rutgers Newark, sponsored by the Price Institute, and that's going to be on April 15th. And uh, there's more to come. I'm super excited to be on this wonderful new podcast. And again, very appreciative of, of any time out of, out of our precious moments that we have right now that folks would share with me. So thank you. You're very, very welcome. So we've got press coming up for All the Rage. And I assume that there's been no lack of inspiration during the pandemic for you to be writing <laughs> continuously and consistently. So what else are you working on? I am fascinated by punctuation right now. And so I'm thinking a lot about unusual ways of using punctuation. I'm thinking a lot about the way that Prince used language and the way that he tweets spelling and syntax. So that's some of the stuff that I'm working on. And I'm working on a bunch of erasure poems. So I'm looking at some of the, there's been a lot happening in the government in the last couple of years. <laughs> and I'm thinking about the absurdity of the 45th administration of the USA and thinking about doing erasure poems with some of the documents that came out of that administration. Oh, they just made my shoulders tense when you said the 45th administration of... Who shall not be named. That's awesome. So I want to move into a quick speed round and then I will let you go. So again, since you're not a stranger to the podcast, you should know, <laughs> you should be ready, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> right. at least for the first few. <laughs> what is your favorite book? One of my favorite books of all time. No Language is Neutral by the poet Dion Brand. Check it out. Who is your favorite poet? All right, so poets can't do just one. Um, Harriet Mullen, Dion Brand, Mervasey Phillip are three of the top ones. What is your favorite song? Again, hard to pick just one. I think in this moment, I'm going to choose Love Me Still, either the Ray Charles or the Shaka Khan version. I'll take either one. Not mad at that. Since you spend time in New York and you are a poet, who is your favorite MC? Who? Dead or alive, north, south, east, or west. Okay, see... I am old school and corny. And so I like the diddly, diddly, diddly D, heavy D. <laughs> I don't think that's corny at all. <laughs> I don't think that's corny at all. Okay. Uh, what sound brings you joy? Mm. I'm going to do two again. One is bird song, and one is laughter. If you were a color, what would you be? See, people choose only one color. Because I can do any color that's bright, but we can say a chartreuse. Ooh. 
<laughs> What's the difference, in your opinion, between poetry and spoken word, or is there a difference? Yeah, you know, these are fighting words in some <laughs> I know. <laughs> I gave you a um, <laughs> All spoken word is poetry, but not all poetry is spoken word. Is that your final answer? Final answer. <laughs> uh, how do you protect yourself from being enraged all the time? Mm. Laughter. Family. And this is a question I stole from another interviewer from a podcast I was listening to, but I like <laughs> it. Uh, what's something you wish people would ask about you or your work that they never do? including me. That is great. I wish that people asked more about the structure of the work because people always ask about the content, um, mm -hmm. but they don't always ask about the mechanics. And I think in general with writing by uh, BIPOC folks, that is a trap that we fall into to say, oh, the story is really wonderful the story is really interesting and not to say that there is actually really wonderful craft happening as well. So let's talk about the, the structure then. <laughs> no, well, you mentioned it earlier that you were playing with um, punctuation now, but I mm -hmm. also noticed it in all the rage that mm -hmm. the periods are at the beginning of the sentences. Mm -hmm. They are closed quotations at the beginning mm -hmm. of sentences and things are, are awry. <laughs> I, I love that word. Things are awry. Indeed. So yeah, that was very deliberate. And it's something that I call, I, I imagine that other people have done this before. I haven't seen it before, but I can't imagine that anyone else has done this before, but I call it punctuation and jamming, right? And so enjambment is the word that we use for when the meaning of a line of poetry carries over from one line into the next. The opposite of enjambment is an end stop line, a line where you just read it and that's it. You don't need to read into the next line to get the meaning. And I call putting the punctuation at the beginning punctuation enjambment because I think punctuation in poetry is again, it's just super interesting. If you have a line that is an end stop line where the line itself has all of the meaning, do we really need a comma there? What is the comma doing? Hmm. If we're already pausing, if punctuation is is usually, you know, basically um, traffic traffic signs, right, telling you when to stop, when to pause, when to go, um, then what is it doing? And I find when I move it to the front of the line, people pay more attention to it, as opposed to it disappearing. Number one, and then number two, it actually carries the meaning into the next line. So for me, it's a, it's it's working with the structure of poetry, but it also for me is about larger questions of us as people being connected to other people and to other beings, to trees, to animals, to the ocean, et cetera, that we might not think, we might think that there's a stop. And I look at a white person, there's a stop, I'm not connected to you. You know, I look at the ocean and say, well, I love, you know, the ocean's beautiful, but it's clearly so different from me. And yet we're all connected still at all times. So there's an immersive quality to your work. Immersive. I think that would be a good thing if people find it immersive when they're reading it. I would take that as a compliment. 
consider yourself complimented from your own you. explanation. <laughs> You're very welcome. Um, but like in, in you explaining that, the first reference I could think of was the Bible, where mm. if, if if you if anyone's ever read a couple of chapters in the Bible back to back, you'll notice that they all go together. There's like people created the stops and starts and mm-hmm. the punctuation in that, but it it all flows together chapter to chapter to chapter. Mm-hmm. So then, that makes me think of, it, that was the first thing I was reminded of when you said about the punctuation and jam it, and it all flowing. So you don't need to stop at the end of the line. You can continue mm-hmm. into the next line. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Also see that PhD at work there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Money well spent. Okay. So for my final question for today, you have work everywhere and have been writing since probably you could read and write. So when you're dead and gone, what would you like someone to write about you and your legacy? Well, what what I, I, I would like for someone to say that what I strive for now, I was successful at. And so not necessarily in this order, I would like for people to say that I worked hard, that I did not repeat myself, Mm. and that I made people feel, wonder, and think, not necessarily in that order. Okay, one more question for real. (laughs) (laughs) Why is it important that people know that you didn't repeat yourself? Because I think when you start to get the things, the shiny things, the publications, the awards, I think that it can be, you can be seduced into doing the same thing that you did before Mm -hmm. to get more of the shiny things. And if you do something different, people might say, well, all the rage isn't anything like rock, salt, stone. To me, that's a good thing. I don't want to settle into doing the same thing over and over. I want to continuously try different things and they might not all be successful, but I want to keep pushing myself and challenging myself. That's beautiful. Because there's growth there. That's the goal. Yeah. Thank you, Rosamond. That was beautiful. Thank you. This has been so much fun. Big shout out to Rosamond for being here today. Make sure you check out her poetry collection, All the Rage, out right now, right now, from Night Boat Books. And... If you're not following Rosamond, follow her on the socials. She's at Rosamond Dr. King on Twitter. That's R-O-S-A-M-O-N-D Dr. D-R King on Twitter. And R-S-K Happens on Instagram. That's R-S-K Happens on Instagram. That's our show for the week. If you liked this episode and want more Black and Published, which you should go ahead and hit that subscribe button on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you hear, leave us a rating, a review, a comment. Let us know who you'd like to hear on the show next. You can also follow Black and Published at Black and Published on Instagram and Twitter at BLK and Published. And if you want to keep up with me, head to newrights.com. That's N-E-W-W-R-I-T-E-S.com. Or you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Nikisha underscore Elise. 
That's our show. I'll holler at y'all next week.